laughter is a great thing. Amen? We need to be able to laugh. I ran across a video of um, a comedian named John Christ. I don't know if you follow him, but he's funny. And I'm telling you, this one, this one got me because I've seen it in church over the years. And maybe you will appreciate what he's uh, trying to get through here. So, Sam, if we could... Today we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, you want me to... Should I pray? You want to... Should we pray? I don't know if... All very confusing. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad. That is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is going to require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this. If it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Do I pray for coffee? No. Are you a psychopath? No one wants to be next to the person at Starbucks that's praying over a latte, you weirdo. Soup. Do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that, is always off the hook. I like to say if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's going to require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system a lot of people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Ask any Bible-believing Christian, they're going to have a different policy on fries. Some say never eat the fries. Some say eat as many as you want. Here's the policy on fries. Up to three Fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. That brings us to dessert. Always a very confusing situation. A lot of times people go out to a show, go to a movie. Hey, should we grab some dessert afterward? Yeah, let me get the creme brulee. I love cheesecake. You don't need to pray for that because you've already prayed for your meal earlier in the night. Do you hold hands before you pray? That depends on your situation. If it's a personal family gathering, some close-knit Bible study of some sort, sure, a hold hand wouldn't be uncomfortable. Now, if you're on a Tinder date, that might throw off the mood a little bit. Most of the confusion surrounding pre-meal prayer comes from when to actually pray. Let me just say, on behalf of waiters all over the world, please pray when your waiter is not there. There's nothing worse than a waiter coming out with two full arms of fajitas, and you're over there mid-prayer of Jabez. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Last but certainly not least, who at the table volunteers to lead the prayer. Lots of people say the man should lead the prayer. Why is that? I'm not sure. It's 2018. Maybe we should get that rule adjusted at some point in the near future. A lot of people operate under the most spiritual person at the table. They're going to be the one that should pray because that prayer is going to be the most powerful and effective. So if you got obviously a pastor, a missionary, even a Christian blogger of some sort, shoot, even a volunteer youth pastor, that prayer is going to be a little less effective, but it's still going to qualify. If you're just an average person sitting at the table with obviously more spiritual people around you, you're kind of off the hook because I feel like God would be like, hey, how come y'all didn't bless this meal? You'd be like, I don't know. Ask the pastor who works for you. <laughs> oh my goodness. That has nothing to do with the message today. Just We just need to laugh a little bit. Have you ever found yourself... <laughs> In that uh, position, 
Well, it's always fun uh, when I go out to lunch with any of you that I usually end up praying. But here lately, we just said, who's ever in the middle of the table? And they always put me on the end, so it works out great. <coughs> anyway, you know, I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure that will be the case. In those Bibles you held up, we want to talk today about the man with a withered hand. In Mark chapter 2, tried to make that as small as I could so you, could never, you couldn't see the letter. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3 and verse 6. I want to read that together, so open your Bibles and uh, get there to that. Um, in this day and age, we have a lot of people who are stuck with change. They don't like it. They don't want it. They rebel against it. It's not biblical, some would say. Change is tough, isn't it? Would you say amen? And, and making changes is even harder. Uh, because we start out with great intentions in our changes, but they don't always last. Proof of that is January 1 every year people make New Year's resolutions. Boy, this year I'm going to, and then you fill in your blank, and usually by the 2nd of January, <laughs> you're done. Let's pick up our story in Mark 2.23. Sam, uh, this is a little bit loud on my, my mic here. Says, and it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Pharisees were saying to him, "Look, why are you doing that? Uh, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath?" And he said to them, "Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest?" and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is, is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered, now chapter 3, He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. He said to the man with a withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath or to save to save a life or to kill? Ah, but they kept silent. Verse 5, After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as, they, as to how they might destroy him. A veteran senior angel was giving a brand new freshman angel a tour of heaven. The freshman angel was wide-eyed and awestruck as he saw the vastness and the majesty and wonder of God's incredible universe. When they came to the Milky Way, the senior angel said to the freshman angel, Hey, come over here, son. I, I want to show you something special. I want you to look down there. That tiny planet is called Earth. It, it, it looks rather insignificant from here, doesn't it? It looks so small, so inconsequential, but something quite remarkable happened 
there, uh, there on that place some years ago. The people of earth had gotten off the track a bit. They were missing the whole point of their existence. They were missing the meaning of life. So God sent His only Son into that world to save them and turn them around and teach them what He meant for it to be like, uh, what, what it was to be like for them on earth. Wow! That's amazing, said this freshman angel very excitedly. You mean to tell me that God's Son actually visited that little planet? How pleased the people of earth must have been to receive Him. I can just imagine that they must have had a great celebration for Him on earth. Well, not exactly, said the senior angel. And with tears glistening in his eyes, he said, No, they tried to kill Him. They were so rigidly wrapped up in their own ways of doing things that when he presented some new ideas, they resented him and they tried to silence him. Blinded by the old, they missed the new. The Lord was in that place and they did not even know it. How easy it is to fall into that type of trap. That we would be so rigid in how we do things, so paralyzed in how we do things, that new things threaten us. New things get us off track. Oh, I'm not really happy with that. Oh, I just don't know about oh, 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 oh. You fill in the blank. The color. Pews to chairs. A paint color on a wall. Man, who thought of that color? It doesn't even match anything. Got it. Did you paint it? Well, no, I didn't paint it. I wouldn't have painted that color. Well, here's the brush. And usually what happens? It doesn't get painted. Because they really don't want to paint it. They just don't like whoever did who painted it. And the color they chose. Isn't it funny how we are? You know, some churches really get upset if you don't use the King James Bible to preach from. And I don't. And I probably won't. Much to the chagrin of several within our church. Sister Geneva used to go round and round with me about the King James Bible. I said, but you know, sister, you only use the KJV. You need to start using the A-KJV. She said, what's that? I said, the authorized King James Version. You're just using King James Version. You need the A-K-J-V. And you got to say it with your jowls all messing around. What is the authorized King James Version? It was all written in the 1600s. I had a guy tell me one time, he was as serious as he could be. He said, well, if the you need to use that King James, boy. I said, well, sir, um, why do you think that? He said, well, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul to use, it's good enough for me. He's dumb in a brick. There's a body in the 16th century. But could you tell him that? Lord have mercy. No. Never will forget the guy that held up his King James Bible and he says, you know, black people are all going to hell. I said, you want to say that again? He said, black people are all going to hell. They got the curse on them from Cain. I said, where did you get that? It's in the Bible right there. 
I said, well, I don't, it, I don't read it in my Bible. He said, well, because you're not using the correct Bible. I said, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to stand up and leave. Because I have some black friends and black brothers that I and sisters that I consider to be my brothers and sisters. And if I were to cut their arm, their blood would bleed red just like mine. And the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, He shed just for them too. And I said, and I'm going to say something to you that I'll regret. So I'm just going to go ahead and dismiss myself now and leave your home. They never came back to our church. This church, they never came back. Good. Good! Because they wouldn't have fit in anyway. Because we love everybody, don't we? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. We believe that! Yeah, we do. I wish we had more. I wish we had more nationalities and more ethnic groups contained within our church. But that was the first time I'd really, really, really got angry at a fellow Christian to the point where I wanted to hurt them. I wanted to help that person get to heaven early. I really did. I really did. Because that's just nuts. But we fall into these traps. We get paralyzed. And we get we get threatened. We're blinded by the forms. We miss the force. We're blinded by our rituals. We miss our reason for being. We're blinded by our narrowness. We miss God's nearness. We're blinded by the old. We miss the new. A couple weeks ago, someone came to me and said, can we rearrange the sanctuary? I said, go for it, whatever. And some of you came in and the next Sunday and went, wow, whoa, hey, ah. you're not sitting where you used to. That's okay. It's really okay. All the chairs are the same, by the way. We bought them all in bulk. Your chair that you've sat in for years is not any different than the chairs way up here. Promise you it's not. Bottom in bulk. Oh, I know. Your bottom has broken that in to just be just right. I got it. I got it. I got it. In Mark 3, Jesus is already a marked man in the third chapter of Mark. The Orthodox leaders, the Jews, they were already out to get Him. Already they have clashed Jesus and these Pharisees and Sadducees, these priests. They're so threatened by Christ. They're watching Him. They're looking for any way they can trap Him. You know what I've discovered in life? Is that if, if somebody doesn't like you, and they can hurt you in some way, they're going to find a way to hurt you. How many of you have experienced that? And it don't matter what. And it don't matter. They can be totally lying. Because there's always two sides to every story, is there not? But most people don't hear the second side, do they? They'll only listen to what so-and-so said about so-and-so because it must be true. And the trickiest part of that whole thing is when somebody says something about somebody else to you, they always say, it's just between you and me. Jesus goes in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was his custom to be in church on that holy day, and he would not be frightened off 
by nervous and powerful authority figures. I saw just the other day a, a post on Facebook that where President Trump had brought up a, a guy and was sharing how he had found Christ in prison. And he went on to talk about the conversion experience and how Christ was has transformed his life. Wow, it was such a breath of fresh air to hear. Now, of course, out of, out of his mouth and ten minutes from now, it may be something totally ungodly, but at least at that moment I was hearing that. Isn't that great? It's always great to hear people proclaim Christ and the changing message of Christ. But Jesus was seen as a troublemaker. They were to keep an eye on him. No one could miss them. But in the synagogue, you see, the front seats were seats of honor, and they were always in those seats. I notice ours continually stay empty because you've been taught not to ever sit on the front row. You must be doing something bad if you sit on the front row. You can't do much by it if you're on the front row. It's a good place to be. You can sleep better up here because the preacher looks over you if you're on the front row. It was the duty of the Sanhedrin to deal with anyone who was mis- was likely to mislead the people. So, boy, they were scrutinizing everything Jesus said, watching him carefully. And in the synagogue that day, there was this man with his withered hand. His hand had been paralyzed. The Greek word that's used here to describe the condition of his hand suggests that he had not been born that way, but that some illness or injury had taken the strength from him and from that hand. And he kept it pulled up in his sleeve because he was ashamed of how it looked. He didn't want to be a beggar. If Jesus had been a, a scared man, he would have looked the other way. Perhaps he knew that he was being watched. He knew that if he helped the man who was asking for big trouble, I'm in big trouble with a capital T. It was the Sabbath day, and all work was forbidden on the Sabbath, and to heal his work. Oh, what do I do? Awards me, awards me, Jesus was saying. I don't know what I'll do because I don't want to offend. Oh, my goodness, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Oh, my goodness, I need $54 million to buy a fourth jet. Glory to God. I know you're going to help me get the jet. Glory to God. I'll wait. Got a preacher, he's, got, he's out there pointing at the jet in the picture on the wall. He's got his other three jets to the left, but he wants this one, $54 million. Come on, folks, bring that money. God needs me to be in that plane right here, right now. Wow. What could we do with $54 million? I would ask our elders and deacons, what could we do with $54 million? Cut the grass. Glory to God. We could begin to pay that poor old boy that comes here and cuts our grass for nothing in the heat of the summer. We could replace vehicles that are falling apart. Well, we tear down this little bitty building and let's go buy some land and build us a massive building. Huge $34 million building. Because if you got the building, you're going to get the people. But 
it was Sabbath day. All work forbidden. What's he going to do? What's Jesus going to do? So Jesus turns to those gathered around him and he says, Hey, what's the right thing to do? To, to, to take a life or to save a life? I don't miss this point. It's very subtle, but don't miss it. Jesus knew that the Pharisees were plotting against his life. And so he asked, Is it right to take life or to save life? Then Jesus says to the man, because they've said nothing. They didn't know how to answer him. And they were really afraid to answer him. Because they thought he was trying to trick them. Because that's the way he was. He was an old trickster. Stretch forth your hand, he tells the man. The man does it and he's healed. He's healed! He... Jesus said, put that hand out there. Can you see his eyes? He didn't say anything. I bet you didn't say a word. I bet tears rolled down his face. He went up his hand and he said, I'll bet you. Wouldn't you? Where are you going? He doesn't have to say anything. Just holds it up, right? He just holds his hand up. Listen to the last sentence that we read there in chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. He did, he did a great thing. They must not rejoice. They sought to destroy him. And then they said, they held counsel with the Herodians. Now here are the Herodians. They were the court entourage of Herod. So it's how scared and desperate the Pharisees were. Normally they wouldn't have anything to do with the Herodians. Normally they considered them unclean. But now, because of Jesus and their jealousy of Him, they were prepared to enter into whatever alliance they needed, holy and holy, to get Him. So they plotted with the Herodians against Jesus to destroy Him. And that's how the story ends. Blinded by their hostility, they miss the holiness. Blinded by their hatred, they miss the healing. Blinded by their duty, they miss the divinity. Blinded by the, blinded by the old way, they miss the new way. For you see, to the Pharisee, religion was ritual. Even when they burned certain rules and regulations, if you kept the rules, you were good. If you broke the rules, you were bad. Jesus broke the regulations. They were genuinely convinced that he was a troublemaker and he needed to be silenced for the good of the community. What have I told you that we'll really be moving and we'll really be growing in Christ when during the message or during the song service you get up out of your chair and you go up to that cross and get on your knees and start crying out to God? You don't know if something's happening in you. Why? Because I didn't say it. The song didn't say it. The Holy Spirit did it. The Holy Spirit picked you and prodded you and you got up out of the seat and went and said something to the Lord. Well, I can do it right here, preacher. Yeah, you sure can. There's something special about making it known in public, isn't there? There's an accountability that's good for us. Religion meant service, caring, loving, helping people. That's what Jesus thought. Ritual was irrelevant unless it produced love in action. 
A poet once said, Our friend, our brother, and our Lord, what may thy service be? Not name, nor form, nor ritual words, but simply following thee. To Jesus, the most important thing in the world is not the correct performance of a ritual, but the spontaneous, compassionate answer to the cry of human need. First time I ever served community, I was in high school. And the elders decided, and the men decided, to, Hey, we need to break this young buck in here. He's 16 years old. Let's get him up here serving community. So they get me, and we had tile floor, we had carpet in the aisle, but tile under the pews. So you hear the clicking, 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 heels and all that stuff. So I get the tray, and I get the bread, and I've got the cup, and boy, I'm just, I'm really nervous. So I hand the bread a tray down, and lady takes it. I handed the bread down, because that's what you do. You gotta have the bread first, you can't do the cup first, you gotta do the bread first. Because it sounds like it's, you, know, you can't drink the blood until you eat the bread. Got it? You got to eat the bread and then you drink the blood. You, you, you see what I'm saying? So they got the bread. Now I'm ready for the bread. I hand, I hand that tray to her and I was convinced she had it in her hand. <laughs> Some of you already know where I'm going. Tile floor. It was loud and messy. And she had grape juice all over her dress, all over her legs, all over her feet, and all over the floor. And it was running under the pews because, you know, the, the floor was tilted toward the front so the preacher looks higher. Yeah, I got it. And I had nothing to clean up with. And the guy that was on the other end that was serving with me had that look. It says, you stupid, stupid boy. I, I, I think he was thinking out loud, you're going to hell. You know what you've done? You done you're going to hell, boy. You done dropped a Jesus. Shed the blood of Jesus again. But I love what the preacher did. Preacher heard all of it, turned around, saw what was going on, saw my face, flushed out, red, every other color I could come up with. He got up, walked back to the back, motioned to a couple of the ladies, go get some towels, put his arm around me, and he said, man, that was loud, wasn't it? <laughs> I said, yes, sir, it was. He said, uh, I need you to serve next week because we're going to need you. We're going to need to help you get past this, okay? So I need you to serve next week. And I didn't, of course, I didn't want to serve next week. But guess what I got to do next week? And trust me, I held that tray till that woman took it to her lap. Boy, I held that tray. I said, you got it? She says, I got it. I said, okay. Then I let go. But man, I had a death grip on that. I never dropped another tray. I never dropped another tray. And the preacher said, you know what? I need you to serve again, and you're going to do it next week. He didn't tell me, you worthless child, when you're 20, we'll let you give us another shot. He put me at it the next week. He busted through the ritual of making a mess and said, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Jesus. Sometimes we get so blinded by the oil that we miss the new. Let me be specific about that. First, 
Sometimes blinded by the law, we miss the chance to love. Blinded by the law, we miss the chance to love. That's what happened to the Pharisees that day. They were so alarmed and so upset when they saw Jesus break the Sabbath law that they were totally blinded to the compassionate, wonderfully loving thing that He had just done for the man with his hand. They missed the whole thing. We've had, we've had people come to church and they'll burst out while I'm preaching. Bothers you. I can tell it bothers you. I can see you're fishing in your chair. You're trying to turn around looking at them. And what did I do when they did that? I just told you. to. I calmed you down first, didn't I? I said, just calm down. Satan's trying to distract. And we won't be distracted because we got a message to preach. Then I asked the person, we don't do that here. They shut up just like that. Guess what? If it was the Holy Spirit, I couldn't have told it to hush. <laughs> but you've got to have a discerning spirit. And they missed, they missed the love that Jesus was pouring out on this man who had lost his ability to use his hand. They were blinded by their laws, blinded by the law. They missed the love. And surely the Lord was in that place as he did what he did. David Heath had a nine-year-old daughter, Jennifer, who was bitten by a three-foot-long copperhead snake. David Heath and his wife, Judy, were building a new home on the lake. Late one afternoon, as they were inspecting the progress on their new house, they heard their daughter scream. Uh, she was down by the water's edge and had been playing. And there was no phone, no cell phone. There, there was no way to call an ambulance. So David and Judy Heath did what you and I would have done. Their nine-year-old daughter had been bitten by a highly poisonous snake. Time was of the essence, so they scooped her up. In their loving arms, they jumped into, her, into their car. And they made this mad dash to the nearest hospital. And with the car's emergency lights on and flashing the horn dashing, they drove frantically through the streets in search of medical help for their daughter. It was horrifyingly life or death a situation for them. Finally, they arrived at the hospital, rushed in the emergency room, where a talented team of doctors and nurses worked with care and precision over the next seven days to save Jennifer's life. But that day, when her dad came out of the emergency room, he was met by a policeman who ticketed him for five traffic violations, speeding, running a red light, running a stop sign, reckless driving, and disturbing the peace, and was put on probation. The true story shows the weakness of legalism. Now don't get me wrong, don't misunderstand me, I'm not fussing about the law. The law is there for a purpose. True? But sometimes we just have to simply do. And the officer was doing his duty. He was doing his job. But sometimes when love and understanding and compassion need to be put in place to supersede the law, it ought to happen. And I'm glad that Jesus was a child of grace and a servant of love. And rather than a slave of the law, sometimes blinded by the law, we miss the law. Secondly, sometimes blinded by common practice, we miss the common sense. Pharisees were so trapped in their usual rigid com uh, common ways of doing things that they were blind to just common sense of helping a man in need. There's a classic story about the young man who found his new wife in the kitchen preparing a roast for dinner. Very carefully, he cut, she cut the roast in half, and then very conscientiously, she put one half in a pan and the other half in another pan and then put them in the oven. 
husband was always puzzled by that, and he asked her, he says, why do you cut the roast in half and put halves in separate pans? He said, well, I've just always done it that way. But why? Well, because mom did it that way, and the husband picked up the phone, calls his mother-in-law, and asked her why she always cut the roast in half and baked the two halves in two separate pans. She said, because grandma did it that way. When they asked grandma why she did it that way, she said, because I didn't have a pan big enough to hold the roast. Now, we can get so locked into certain ways of doing things that we fail to consider whether they're right or wrong or whether they make any sense at all. I used to serve in the church where all the men met in the back, got lined up, lock order, walked down the aisle, went off, sit down on the front pews, preacher followed behind them, and he, while they sit, he would walk up to the stage and sit on a chair up there. Every Sunday like that. Except the Sunday that broke the monotony. Preacher went to the bathroom before they walked up. Forgot to turn the mic off. And he's in the bathroom. Just whistling away. All of a sudden, he was all over the sound system. So that morning, while they walked like step up to the front, Every time that he passed the pews, people were laughing. First time there'd been any humor in that church in years. What was fun though was to watch his face when I he came out to get in line and I was leading singing that day, so I pulled his coat up and he saw the red light was on. He went, No. I said, Yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. Guarantee you never did it again, boy. They, they fired him after that. It's done. No, I'm just teasing. They didn't fire him. But we get so locked into doing things a certain way and a certain... Don't we? Don't we? Are we that way? We've got to be careful. Thirdly, finally, blinded by our systems, we miss the Savior. We see it graphically here in Mark 3. The Son of God walked into their lives and they tried to kill Him. <laughs> he tried to teach them love and they wouldn't listen. They had their ways, they had their systems, and Jesus was upsetting the apple carton, so they plotted against him. So the story goes, one Sunday morning during Sunday school, the ninth grader turned to the turned on the fire alarm. Bells began ringing loud, and in just a few moments, three fire trucks and sirens blaring, with their sirens blaring were there to answer the false alarm. And when they asked the ninth grader why he turned on the fire alarm, he said, I didn't think it would work. And you know what we say to God? Page after page of Scripture, God urges us to put first love, to have good will toward all people, to pray for others, to help others, to care for others, to serve others. Supremely in Jesus, God shows us that love is the answer. Love is the way. Love is what He wants. But we don't think it will work. We rely on power plays and hostile threats and political strategies and bureaucratic systems. We plot against one another. We flood each other with cruel words and deadly gossip. We crucify one another trying to get out of the way. We don't quite trust love yet. We don't think it will work. Well, let me tell you something. He showed you love. And He showed me love. And He died on the cross so that we could understand that love. 
Why aren't we sharing it with other people? Why aren't we so quick to show love instead of hatred? Grace instead of law. Now having systems that work, it's important in the church. Don't get me wrong. But the system should never supersede the love of Christ. If somebody's not here to fix communion, do we just panic? I remember one Sunday some years ago, we got, we were going to church. We were singing the first songs and going. And there wasn't any communion up there. You know what somebody did, had the audacity to do? They actually got up, went to the back, made up the communion, rolled it in while we were singing and put it on the table. I almost, I was this close to stopping and saying, you're disrupting the ministry of God and the flow of the Spirit. You want to stop? No, I didn't do that. I didn't even say anything to him. I was just grateful somebody saw it and <laughs> put it together and brought it back. Amen? Yeah, just don't get too fired up about it. Let's get love involved before we start doing anything else. Let's try it. Because you never know what might happen when we show the love like Jesus showed us from the cross. When we show that to other people, not laws or practices or systems, but love is the most important thing that we as a church can show to people every day. He loved you. Will you love others? Father, I ask you this morning, is there one here today that will respond to the message that we should love before we judge? We should love before we criticize. We should love before we jump to conclusions. And God, more than anything, thank you for the great love you've given each of us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. And we are so grateful. But is there one today that's never met that saving touch, had that saving touch shared with them? Would they respond today? In Jesus' name, amen. Great song of faith.